0: PTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life.
1: Asking them about urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, should be a more routine type of question that's asked. These
2: exercises are much more complicated because you can't see the muscles
1: but only four women of those 15 actually did 100% of what they
2: were supposed to do. There seems to be no focus on pedestal muscle training, and that could be a natural part of women's health.
0: Welcome to this PTJ podcast discussion, physical therapist management of patients with stress urinary incontinence. PTJ editorial board member Dr. Patricia Otake is joined by Dr. Diane Borrello-France and Dr. Carrie Bowe doctor Borello, Borrello-France, of Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was the lead author of a study which appeared in the December 2008 issue of PTJ, investigating pelvic floor muscle training for female stress urinary incontinence. Dr. Bo is a physical therapist and exercise scientist from the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences in Oslo, Norway. And now, our moderator, Patricia Otake.
3: We are here today to discuss the management of female urinary incontinence. Urinary incontinence is a public health problem with negative social consequences. The prevalence of urinary incontinence ranges from roughly 10% to 60% depending on the population studied and given the high prevalence of this condition and the negative effects on quality of life, identifying effective methods for the management of urinary incontinence is very important. In the December issue of Physical Therapy, Dr. Diane borello france was the lead author of a publication entitled Continence and Quality of Life Outcomes, Six Months Following an Intensive Pelvic Floor Muscle Exercise Program for Female Stress Urinary Incontinence, a Randomized Trial Comparing Low and High Frequency Maintenance Exercise. The investigation examined the hypothesis that women must continue pelvic floor exercises to maintain the improvements in urinary continence that were gained during the intensive pelvic floor program. So, joining us to discuss this investigation and the topic of the management of women's urinary incontinence today are Dr. Borello France and also Dr. Carrie Beau, another leading expert in this field. Welcome, Dr. Borello France.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me today. I was wondering if at this point you could tell us. A little about your current research focus. Sure. In addition to the studies that we're going to be talking about, the majority of the research that I've done has really been part of two multicenter clinical trials that have been sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. I've been a co-investigator in both of them. The one is the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network and the other is the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network. Through these networks, I've been involved in basically three major studies. The first one is the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network CAP study, which looked at the occurrence of fecal and urinary symptoms in over 800 women after childbirth, published in October 2006 in Obstetrics and Gynecology. The second pelvic floor disorders network study is the ATLAS study, and that study compared three conservative interventions for stress urinary incontinence, and they include the use of an incontinence pessary alone, a behavioral intervention arm, which included pelvic floor muscle exercise and the combined use of both of those interventions. And this study has been completed, but the data hasn't been released to the investigators. And lastly, the BDRY study through the Urinary Incontinence Treatment Network, which was recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And this study examined whether adding a behavioral intervention, which included pelvic floor muscle exercises to drug treatment for women with predominant urge incontinence would improve the ability. These women to achieve reductions in urinary incontinence and also to sustain these improvements after discontinuation of drug therapy.
3: Well, thank you for that update. It certainly sounds like you have expanded beyond just the pelvic floor muscle exercises that were studied in this particular trial.
1: Yes, participation in these networks has been very um, opportunistic in terms of being able to explore a lot in different areas. That's great.
3: Also joining us today to discuss urinary incontinence is Dr. Carrie Bowe. Professor Bowe is considered an international expert on pelvic floor muscle training and is a popular presenter all over the world. She is the former vice president of the International Organization of Physical Therapists and Women's Health, as well as the former vice president of the Norwegian Physical Therapy Association subgroup for sports physiotherapy. We're so happy you could join us today, Dr. Bowe.
2: Thank you very much. It's so nice to be able to do this.
3: And I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your current research program.
2: Yes. uh, Basically, we have four big studies going on uh, now or about to start. So we just finished one muscle control trial of pelvic floor muscle training to treat or try to stop and reverse pelvic organ prolapse. And uh, unfortunately, I cannot tell any of the results because we're about to analyze that. And I think we are the first in the world doing ultrasonography on the pelvic floor muscles, looking at the morphology before and after and comparing that with the control group. So that's the first study. And then I'm also part of a big study in Norway called Norwegian Modern Child Cohort Study. So we are looking at the physical activity and exercise during pregnancy following women from early pregnancy until they are seven years old, the children of the mothers. So this is a big, big cohort with 100,000 women. And in addition to that, we have a must-control trial trying to reduce weight gain during pregnancy. And that is also just finished now. So we are, again, starting to analyze the results. And the fourth study, uh, we just received a grant with postpartum peripheral muscle training. And, again, we're using the same ultrathomography methodology that we have developed during this pelvic organ prolapse study. So this will be very exciting, I think,
3: so this afternoon, we'd like to discuss the study that doctor borello Borrello-France published this past December in Physical Therapy. And this study was a follow-up study of women with urinary incontinence who had previously participated in a program of intensive pelvic floor muscle exercise. doctor borello Borrello-France, I was wondering if you could please describe the specific pelvic floor exercise program for women with urinary incontinence.
1: Sure. Um, In this study, we had 44 women. They were women with stress urinary incontinence. The intervention that we actually provided was 9 to 12 weeks of supervised pelvic floor muscle exercise as well as some advice for using their pelvic floor muscles during functional activities like coughing and sneezing. The program was individualized for the patient. During the sessions, we did use biofeedback more for um, helping the physical therapist progress the exercises throughout the 9 to 12 weeks, although the biofeedback was available to the participant as well. The type of exercises that the women did specifically, they did both shorter pelvic floor muscle contractions, three-second contractions as well as a longer pelvic floor muscle contraction of 12 seconds. And over the nine to 12 weeks, the number of these contractions was progressed. The maximal uh, number of contractions that they could achieve for the shorter was 60 and for the longer was 30 twice a day. So it was a fairly intensive exercise program in comparison to some other studies in terms of the number of exercises that they actually did throughout the intervention phase. Some of the results that we achieved when we looked at the question that we first aimed to answer as to whether or not women who exercised in upright positions would be better off in terms of outcome than those who exercised in the supine position alone. We did not find any differences in their outcomes on any of the outcomes that we recorded. So they were at the same point. We wanted to also answer the question across the group. So we collapsed data across the group and found in our intention to treat analysis, that's all the women in the study, we found a 67.9% reduction in urinary incontinence, and of the women, 41% of them actually had a 100% reduction in symptoms or cure, and another 20.5% had at least a 75% reduction in symptoms. When we did our efficacy analysis to look at the women who completed the trial, overall, we achieved a 78.8% reduction in urinary incontinence. We also had significant improvements on quality of life as well as pelvic floor muscle strength using the Brink scale to measure strength.
3: Dr. Bo, I'm wondering if you could comment on the actual exercise protocol itself and how it compares with what you use in the studies you've been part of.
2: Yes, I think we are very much in the same line here, that we really try to do as intensive exercise as possible and uh, that we are also trying to supervise the women because we know that it's very difficult for most people in the world to just have a sheet of paper and think that you can do the exercises. And most of the time in physical therapy, this is what's happening. We just tell them to do it and then we assume that they are doing it. And these exercises are much more complicated because you can't see the muscles we need to know if they are able to contract. The women need to know themselves. They need to have the awareness and be sure that they are doing the correct contractions. So I think uh, our thinking is really very much in line.
3: You, you brought up the idea of asking patients to, you know, here's your sheet of paper, now go and do these exercises. And that really ties into the focus of the study that was published in December when Dr. Borello-France was asking, well, they've got this great effect from the initial exercise period, but what do they need to do to maintain it? And I'm wondering if you could comment on the current trial then, Dr. Barolo-France, in terms of what you found and then how you would interpret that
1: for our readers. Sure. So, the second study, as you said, we looked at these women six months after the completion of the intensive intervention period. And what we wanted to find out was whether or not if we looked at giving these women a maintenance exercise program, if some of the women did the exercises at a low frequency, which we defined as one time per week, versus a higher frequency, which we defined as four times per week, if there would be a difference in how well they sustained their outcomes at six months. What we recommended to them was that at the end of the intensive intervention that they perform the exercises at the same intensity during this maintenance phase that they did in the intervention phase, meaning the actual number of exercises that we assigned them, but when they did them, they would only do them once a day. So the group that did them one time a week would only do that number once and then four times a week, four times. So the intensity was kept high, but we reduced the frequency of the exercises group. And we looked at the same outcomes at six months as we did at the end of the original study. The first question we really wanted to know was just really across everybody, did they maintain the good outcomes that they received over the six months? And across all the subjects, across the groups, what we did find was that status on bladder diary, urine loss on pad tests, as well as their pelvic floor muscle strength were maintained at the six-month period. And then when we did our analysis between the two groups, we found that there were no differences between the higher versus the lower exercise prescription in terms of the outcomes. But I have to mention what's important to note is that of those women that did come back for the follow-up, only 15 of those women actually kept track of their exercises in an exercise diary. And for those women, adherence appeared to be pretty high. It was 83% for the women in the low group and 72% in the high-frequency maintenance group but only four women of those 15 actually did 100% of what they were supposed to. Based on the data for the group that didn't keep track, we calculated that they were about 39% adherent to their exercise sessions. So it's really difficult for us to really conclude strongly that the good outcomes that we achieved at this six months were due to continued exercise. So that appears to be a question that still needs to be explored further.
3: Dr. Bo, have you had experiences where you've had individuals that have been part of your study or part of your practice complete a program and then go into a maintenance phase and I'm curious what your thoughts are about the importance of maintenance and your experience and are the women adherent and if they are, do they seem to maintain their function in a better state than if they're not?
2: Yeah, well, this is uh, the problem for all exercise instruments, for all part of the body. I mean, people are not following up their exercises, and this is a big challenge for all of us to try to motivate and try to have systems in the healthcare system or outside the healthcare system to make them maintain their exercises. And I think really that we need to have group exercises so they can join in groups and they could come and go out of this group that should focus on the pelvic floor muscles, just as we focus on abdominal training, low back training, we are doing a lot of thigh training, we are doing a lot of things, aerobic exercises as well, but there seems to be no focus on pelvic floor muscle training and that could be a natural part of women's health. When it comes to studies, I would like to congratulate Dr. Burello France because this is really the first study in the world trying to track and to see if you ask women to continue to do exercises, because we have done two follow-up studies in Norway, and as all the other long-term follow-up studies in the world. No one has really made an effort to make women exercise afterwards. So in our trial, the first trial, we looked at the group that had been exercising intensively, and that was a five-year follow-up. And at this time, 70% of the women were still satisfied, um, did not want further treatment, and 70% were also exercising regularly at five years. And I think that was quite a good thing, although the leakage had increased, but still 70% did not have a leakage on a provocative cough test. So that that was a very good result. Then we did, I think, the longest follow-up trial in the world in this area. That was 15-year follow-up. And at 15 years, um, they had certainly reduced their peripheral muscle training. And also 50% of the women had surgery. However, the interesting thing was really that those who had had surgery were not better off than those who did not have surgery. So, uh, I mean, what is the alternative to peripheral muscle training? Some of the surgery studies really tell us that there are great uh, long-term results, but there are very few long-term studies in surgery as well. And they fail to mention that women have other forms of incontinence instead and that they have had more surgery. So it's not only one surgery and there are a lot of side effects. So the peripheral muscle training is really, I think, and should always be the core of the intervention when it comes to stress urinary incontinence because this is really the ultimate side effects and it's a very functional and effective way to treat incontinence.
3: Mm-hmm. And it, certainly, I think that it's an area that is probably underutilized by physical therapists in terms of managing patients Um, I have a question for you as well, Um, certainly in the U.S. with 30% of the adult population being in the obese category, I'm not sure what the statistics are in Norway, but what is your approach to someone with urinary incontinence that is obese and how much benefit could be related to using pelvic floor muscle exercises as compared to say an added benefit of weight loss then as well?
2: I don't think we have any studies comparing that yet, but there are studies showing that reducing weight will reduce your urinary incontinence. So that's definitely a good idea to start with these lifestyle interventions. And then at the same time, you start to have a weight reduction program, then you also start to do muscle training. But we you know that the most difficult thing to do in the world is to reduce weight so, again, prevention, prevention, prevention. And, um, well, we usually say that we are 20 years after the U.S. in this thing, so we really try and how not to follow the U.S. to have this big problem that, uh, that you have. But it's coming all over the world because we are too sedentary. We are sitting too much. Life has changed, so we have to really plan to be physically active. And, unfortunately, urinary incontinence is one major factor for women, causing them not to be active because this is when they are leaking. So if you sit still and you are doing just some knitting or you are writing or reading, you are not going to leak. But if you are moving, that's when you are leaking, especially with stress union incontinence. So this is a problem because if you have for instance, women in the 40s, and the children are starting to get more independent, the women, they want to start to exercise again, and then they try, and the first they recognize is a leakage, and then they stop. So this is so important that we try to really motivate women to be physically active, but then to choose activities like low impact activities, fast walking, bicycling, and uh, swimming, good activities to lose weight. But at the same time, again, also includes strength training, including peripheral
1: muscle training. Just to expand a little bit on what Dr. Bo had just mentioned, she had mentioned that there really aren't any studies that really have compared numerous interventions at the same time for obese women, but there are several studies by Dr. Subak that have been published in the last couple of years, and what's interesting about these studies is that She found that with a weight reduction of 16 kilograms in women that were in this weight loss group, these obese women, that they experienced a 60% reduction in weekly urinary incontinence episodes just through the weight reduction. And that was regardless of the type of urinary incontinence. Also, this outcome was maintained at a six-month follow-up. So I think just that alone, that 60% reduction just in weight loss is very significant and comparable to some of the other studies that have looked at pelvic floor muscle exercise alone. If
2: mm-hmm. yep, you're starting a weight loss program and you then have a fixed exercise program that you're going to do and that you have a group training session, it could include both aerobic fitness exercises and pelvic floor muscle training because mm-hmm. you go to the gym for one hour, you have a great time, you are... Using, for instance, aerobic exercises and with a good music and then you also include teliflora muscle training in the program. And if you, for instance, in the weight loss program would do this exercise class three times a week, maybe that would be enough for the training if you are doing intensive exercises. We are focusing on abdominals and we're doing all other things, but the teliflora is still a taboo, I think, in the gym.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I'm familiar with your group exercise training, which I've seen you demonstrate that, and I think in the United States, that as you said, talking about pelvic floor muscle exercises is still probably maybe a little bit more of a taboo because it's really not common at all to have those group types of exercise programs clinically or even in gyms and fitness centers.
2: And also, I think... Uh, many women think that strength running is boring and pelvic muscle training can also be quite boring and then I think it helps to do these other exercises also in the exercise class so I think that's the main thing that you make a good atmosphere in the class of course that everyone feels that this is fun and that they are doing the other exercises so they are motivated by doing abdominal training and to work on the posture to work on the breathing and to do other things as well.
3: I wonder if we could just finish off with what I'd like to ask each of you, to: what advice would you have for clinicians that may discover in a history with a patient that they're seeing that there is a problem with urinary incontinence for their female patient? What sort of advice would you want the clinician to have?
1: Well, I think the first thing is for physical therapists that any of the female patients or even male patients for that matter that come to their clinic asking them about urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence should be a more routine type of question that's asked and I'm hoping that that is more routinely done regardless of what type of patient you're dealing with, whether it's a patient with a neurological disorder, if it's a patient with a shoulder problem. I think that we need to educate our students as well as the physical therapists that are out there to make sure that that's a standard history question that's asked routinely. And then from there, if they don't have the expertise to deal with it to certainly provide the patient with some education that there are things that can be done to help them and to give them referral to appropriate sources to help them get some help either through a physician or physical therapist.
2: Dr. you. Yes, I I do do agree because first we have to have the patients tell that they have this problem because we know that only about 30% of women who have this problem are telling the medical doctors, So the first step is really to have that as a routine question because it's so prevalent.
3: Thank you. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you both very much for your time and expertise that you've shared with us.
2: Thank You're welcome. Too. It
1: was a lot thank of fun. So
0: this has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We welcome your feedback. Email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Visit PTJ online at www.ptjournal.org. Thanks for listening.